Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week, I'm talking to Luke Stutters. Hello. And Dave Kamura. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Real quick, I am doing some group coaching, helping some folks build exposure and influence in the developer community. And you can go learn more about that at devchat.tv slash heroes. This week, we're going to talk about our dev setups. This is something that Luke said he was a dinosaur on. And I kind of leapt at it because I bought a new MacBook Pro yesterday. Short short version of the long story is the, the battery on my MacBook Pro that I had before is bulging. No, it's not an M1. I've been asked about eight times now. It, it has an i9 processor in it. It doesn't have the new hardware in it. But uh, it's what they had at Best Buy. And yeah, it wouldn't charge. The other computer wouldn't charge. And given what I do every day, I had a pretty immediate need to not be out of a computer for a week. So yeah. So anyway, it, it is nice having a new machine. But I decided not to do the time machine backup, restore, blah, 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 blah on the new machine. And so I'm essentially setting it up from scratch again, which has been fun. And so I thought, oh, yeah, this is an opportunity for them to remind me of all the things that I haven't put on here yet. <laughs> so, yeah. Luke, what does a dinosaur setup look like? Looks like Windows 10. <gasps> this episode is brought to you by Forest Admin. Forest Admin is the simplest way for Rails developers to build internal tools for their teams while saving precious development time. With Forest Admin, you get the whole package. Full customization, privacy-centric design, and features such as CRUD, searching, filtering, sorting, and pagination, and much more. All you have to do is plug the Rails gem into your app, and you have a complete admin panel on your hands. All in a matter of minutes and without having to bother with coding. Check them out and get started for free at forestadmin.com slash rails. Again, that's forestadmin.com slash rails. You're on Windows? It's, it's almost like it's become it's almost become a kind of Windows anonymous meeting now, hasn't it? You know, my name's Luke Studders and I use Windows 10. I've been using Windows 10 for five years now. It started to affect my personal life and my professional life. And uh, I need some help. <laughs> I so almost I'm bought gonna, a PC. I'm going to interject. And if you use Docker today for most of your development work, it doesn't matter what OS you use. You use Windows, Linux, Mac, and with Docker, you're going to be able to just do what you need to do. Yep. All right. That's I, so I, true. Let's, let me just rewind there a little bit. So like the rest... He's of not the using world, Docker. <laughs> like the rest of the world, I do do all my, my coding, uh, personal coding on a MacBook Pro uh, that I've had since 2013. Replace the battery on it, replace a keyboard on it, replace the speakers on it. A uh, fantastic machine. It's the one with the HDMI port on the right. You remember it well. It's got an SD card slot. But wait, you, you're saying a MacBook Pro with an HDMI port on it? Yeah. Weird. Right. So was that the 2015 variant? It that, that got issued up to about mid 2015, and then they introduced a new keyboard, which I didn't like. So oh yeah. Yeah, I don't miss the butterfly key switches. And so, and when I type that out with the butterfly key switches, it's keys witches. I was on that quite happily for five years until my colleagues started using Windows 10 and WSL, which uh -huh. is Windows subsystem for Linux, uh, specifically WSL 2, 
as part of their main build chain. And I felt like I'd been out of the loop so much on that side of things. Plus, we had to deploy to a Windows platform that I made myself move to Windows 10 as essentially a kind of total immersion, get back in the game, move, just to kind of get up to speed on it. But yeah, for all the rest of my coding, I sit in sit on sit in the Mac. Makes sense. So let's talk about your Windows setup for a minute, because I'm I am curious, and I think it's helpful to dive into it, right? I mean, we kind of live in this Mac almost monoculture. But I mean, I work with people that do Ruby on Windows. I know a bunch of people that do Ruby on Windows, and I have done it in the past on on another machine that's still sitting under my desk. So so what do you do there? I mean, the Windows system for Linux, I can't remember if that's what WSL stands for. Yep. It's pretty robust. I remember when it was experimental, it was a lot less robust, but it works pretty well now. I don't have any complaints about it at this point. Windows subsystem for Linux, if you okay. want to get super precise, and there's a big difference between version one and two. That is essentially my command line and I tell it to be Ubuntu, and it is. All, as Dave said, all of the company applications are sitting in Docker. Mm-hmm. So I've got Docker Desktop, and I build there. We've also got a few ARM-based systems, and those are also built in Docker under Quemu, Q-E-M-U, however mm-hmm. you pronounce it. So in, in reality, it's exactly as Dave says. Once you're in Docker, you can shell in and you're in Linux. Now, to do the SSHing around, then I use PuTTY like everyone else with SSH keys, but I heavily modify my PuTTY terminal to look like a Mac terminal, specifically iTerm, because that's what I like. And there's a few good guides out there, which I can link to. I have a link to a previous show where you turn on clear type and you change the font and a few other behaviors. And then you can get an item light experience on Windows through Putty, and it doesn't hurt your eyes every time you look at the screen. Nice. And so then you just do development basically the same way you would do it on your Mac. Yeah. So, I've, well, this is this the, the pit's going to get deeper here. We're just peeling off the first layer of this onion. <laughs> the, way, the way the way I like to code is I like to sit in Vim off a Bash terminal. That's that's my home. That's where I feel cozy and warm. And I just I just vim stuff. And then usually I've got a kind of a restarter going on in the background. And that's how I that's how I code. I, I haven't used an IDE in anger for about four years since I tried Ruby Motion. But of course, now I'm I've been made to use VS Code. Oh, those horrible people. You lucky. I, <laughs> I did. Emacs on the command line for a long, long, long time. Emacs and Tmux. And I mean, you just get so proficient with those tools. You know, Vim, it's kind of the same deal, right? The- you wouldn't believe how many colon Ws have started appearing in my in my code, you know. <laughs> moving, moving from a mode or less. And I, I, I think you can. I mean, do you actually use the Vim modes, Dave? Vim mode? No. In VS Code? Nope. Mm. I'm just straight VS Code. I, I know it can be done, but mm-hmm. yeah, you there build are plugins. Up, I, I, I mean, I have a, I have a, 
I have a more serious relationship with BIM keyboard shortcuts than I, I do with other people, quite frankly. It's been a longer <laughs> and more stable relationship. And uh, you, in all seriousness, you build up a lot of muscle memory when you're developing. And that means you don't have to divert part of your brain, that part of your brain, away from the, the problem at hand. So uh, this is really maybe hugely reluctant to move to VS Code, but I have but I have not entirely by choice. And there's one killer reason that's made me move, which is formatters, auto, auto code formatters. Again, yeah. something which you can set up in FIM, but I haven't. And in VS Code, you just type in Prettify and then you've got, you know, it automatically formats whatever you commit. Yeah. Yeah, you just pull in the plugin, right? It's such a dumb thing, but you know, it's one of these things where if, if, if people go from unhappy colleagues to happy colleagues, it sounds like you're using VS Code too, Dave. Yeah, and just to give a general idea of my development environment, I try to keep it as simple as possible. So all of my and why you do using Docker? Sorry, because it's simple, man. <laughs> <laughs> It's you not Doc is not simple. It's it's from, it's oh my it's so complicated. From the perspective Rail server of is simple. Getting my computer uh, up and running from a fresh start, what is my downtime? So I'd say the less amount of time it takes to reprovision a brand new computer, the more simple, more likely simple my setup is. So I think that's really important because I was actually just in a chat the other day where someone had an employee who was spending multiple days getting their computer up and running just so they could start coding. And I think that it speaks to a undervalued and unspoken skill set of a developer. And that is how comfortable are you on your development machine? How quickly can you get up and running and productive? And it's something that I think is often overlooked and undervalued. Because if I can get up and running and productive in three hours versus someone who takes four days, that's a lot of time. And a lot of stuff can happen in that time. So, you know, I've been in situations where I accidentally formatted my computer or I have gotten a new computer because one died and I needed to be up and running. So in order to get myself up and running as quickly as possible, I keep a very simple setup. If it's not something that can be automatically provisioned, like within VS Code, there is a now built-in feature called Setting Sync, which all I have to do is log in with my GitHub account and it'll automatically synchronize all of my extensions, my preferences. So I can, as far as just my editor goes, be back up and running within just a few clicks. To have everything down to the window size and the, uh, the zoom level adjusted exactly how I like it for my setup. So something like that, it makes me a bit more free to add in a bunch of extensions or preferences into VS Code because I know at any given point in time, if I were to lose my computer or if I have to provision a new one, 
that editor is not going to be a hindrance. I don't have to worry about backing up dot files or anything like that. It's going to automatically synchronize with setting sync up to a private gist. Yeah, that makes sense. It's funny too, because I remember maintaining a dot files repository. And part of my part of my process was get clone dot files, mv dot files to dot dot files, and then cd dot dot files, and then run the install.sh so it would symlink all the dot files. <laughs> and it was it was for my Emacs config. I'd I'd like to dig into this Docker business because it's one thing to deploy software in Docker. It's quite another to have a, a functional development setup in Docker, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, honestly, I think it's easier to have a Docker development environment than a production Docker environment. I agree. Because with, you know, a production Docker environment, you're having to tag and push your built image up to a registry and then have your CICD pipeline or whatever deployment mechanism get access to that registry and then pull it down and then provision a container off of that image. I think that's a lot more complicated than having a simple Docker Compose YAML file that you can just run Docker Compose up or whatever your commands are. I have aliases for all of mine. And I'm able to just run something like DCU And then that's going to automatically build and spin up my Docker containers via the Compose file. Mm -hmm. I have a alias DCR, which is a Docker Compose run app. And then I can pipe in whatever command I want, like Rails DB migrate. So I never have to really enter in the Docker container. I can just run DCR Rails DB migrate. And it's going to run my migrations. You know, it's just very simple aliases that I use that just makes life a bit easier. So I do have a dot file that I maintain, my ZSHRC. And one thing I do is I have a separate external drive on my computer that I will not only do a time machine backup, but I also have a partition where I have a script which auto compiles a set of directories that's really important to me. So these directories, all of my Rails projects are in one single folder. Let's call it projects. And so all of those get zipped, they get tarballed up into this package that I have running every single day. And my idea or thought is, I can recreate a single day's work in a single day. I lose one day at time if something catastrophic happens, like I'm an idiot and didn't, get push or get commit for an entire day. You know, not that big of a deal. Much better than losing an entire sprint's worth of work. But the idea here is a lot of times, especially in Rails 5 or later, you have a credentials file. And with that credentials file, you might have a specific environment key. That environment key is not getting pushed up to your registry or to your uh, version control, it is stored on that computer. So if you don't have that backed up somewhere, then you have to pull all of that down. If you have a .env, if you use uh, the .env Rails for your environment variable management for a particular application, then you are essentially out of luck if you provision a new computer. And if you don't have those non-git or you know they've been git ignored, 
mm-hmm. available to you. So if I ever need to restore my computer with VS Code, I pull the settings sync, I pull in this tarball from the previous day or the latest day. Usually, you know, it's never that big of a loss. And then I just unzip that or untarball it into my projects folder, copy over my dot files and run or install the Docker for Mac desktop. And I'm pretty much able to then get up and running with my development. You know, it's all a few odd applications here and there, iTerm2 or whatever else. But really, within 30 minutes of booting up that computer for the first time, I'm able to then start programming again. Sure, there's still several hours of work to get my email client downloaded, get my email attached to it, and all of that junk, Slack installed, open up the 10 different Slack spaces that I'm on or whatever. But that's not critical for me to get started working right away. Yeah, I agree. But your your setup's a little bit more involved than mine. I, I hadn't thought about the tarball stuff. And, and how did you say you were managing that? You just have a script that runs regularly or... Yeah, uh, if you just run crontab-e in your terminal, you can Mm -hmm. edit a crontab file for that specific user and then just put in your link to that script that you want to run at 4 a.m. every day and then it'll just do its own thing. That makes sense. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. That's the kicker that we're talking about here is that, yeah, if I have any dependencies... I'm thinking of like a Rails app where it's Rails and Postgres and that's it. Yeah, the Docker Compose setup is convenient, but not completely necessary. But as soon as you have another app with another version of Gems, with another version of Postgres that it wants to talk to, another version of whatever, having that Docker Compose file that just grabs the right stuff, I mean, you just sit there and watch it make equals across the progress until it's done. And then you know, it's pulled down the images that you need and you're set. You're you're good to go. Whereas if you have any weird dependencies, you've got to go and find all those without the Docker Compose. And so that's that's the big win there. And then the other thing is, is yeah, it isolates all those environments from each other so that if I'm working on a Rails 5 app that I'm trying to upgrade and then I move over to the Rails 6 app that I work on on a more regular basis, I don't have to go fiddle with, okay, what version of Ruby is this on? What version of Rails is this? Blah, 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 blah. This one needs Redis. That one doesn't. It just makes it a whole lot simpler. Yeah, you've got to go fiddle with that Docker Compose YAML for each uh, app. But the learning curve on that is really not that bad. Not only is it not bad, but it's in your version control too. Yeah. You don't have to remember anything about it. It stays with your application. And even if you are always working on the latest and greatest version of Rails, so let's say you have two applications that you maintain. One is on MySQL, the other is using Postgres, and one has Elasticsearch and the other one has Redis. You know, a good healthy mix of services. Even if you always stay on the latest and greatest versions of those, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't consider Docker still. Because what you may not take into consideration is if you also keep up to date with the latest and greatest OS on your host machine, then you could run into some issues where certain dependencies have been deprecated and removed 
or something is no longer compatible. So having a dockerized environment, you really don't have to worry about that kind of stuff unless if there's an incompatibility with Docker itself on that new version of the OS or with the hardware. Yep. Now, do you use any of the Docker plugins for VS Code? Not really. The biggest app that I like having around for Docker is called Ctop. And you can just do a brew install Ctop. It'll show you all of your running containers. But then you can also just write arrow key into one of those containers to either restart it, to SSH into it, or whatever. And it kind of gives you this console management piece for your running Docker containers. That makes sense. I hadn't heard that's, of that one. That's really nice. Uh, I've been I've been doing it the the horrible way with Docker Container LS. So we've got our ide- ideal setup. We're sitting in the Docker. Um, we've got the VS Code running. Now I know in VS Code it has a built-in terminal, and that's that's mm-hmm. what people like to use. Are you still in the Bash, or have you moved to the Zish? <laughs> oh Zish or oh my Zish you know it's not called Zish in the UK Zesh I, I, it's called Zedshell Zedshell yeah. Zedshell there we go we've gotten multicultural here folks <laughs> I mean I'm using Zshell and I actually install oh my Zshell mm-hmm. in there and it just gives you some really convenient shortcuts. I mean, I haven't explored the depths of it, so I'm not going to sit here and go, oh, it does all this stuff because I probably don't know half the stuff it does. But, you know, just the colorizing and some of the convenient stuff that it adds to the shell made it a win for me. I'm still getting my hands around all the aliases I want. And and uh, Dave talked about that, but I find that the Docker stuff's pretty verbose. And so I like having the shortcuts for that. Yeah. And I know some people who will just overly abuse Homebrew. So with Homebrew, you can actually do a brew bundle and you can generate a brew file. And then the brew bundle will install everything from that brew file. It's kind of like a gem file, but for Homebrew. And oh, nice. I didn't know that. You know, it's a quick and easy way to reget all of your homebrew things. But I'm very careful on how much stuff I install via homebrew. I'll install all of my applications, you know, even like Microsoft Outlook or Office with the homebrew just because that gives me a quick quick startup point to install all of my applications. I don't have to go multiple places. I could just have this one brew file. But I think where people get into trouble is that they start going beyond the basics of just using it to install applications. They start using it to tailor to what they kind of prefer. Like, I don't know what version of Bash comes with macOS, even Big Sur, but it's a much older version than the latest and greatest Bash. So if you like Bash version 5, but Mac OS comes with version 3 or 4 or something, then you may be tempted to just go ahead and upgrade your Bash version via Homebrew on your computer. But what that does is it creates inconsistencies. You might be writing some scripts that you want to share out with the community, 
but you've written them for Bash 5. Well, nearly every other Mac user is on Bash 3 or Bash 4. So your scripts are just going to cause problems or they're just not going to work. And then people are going to minimize the effectiveness or power of what that script could potentially do. But then also, now you have something else that you have to maintain. So any kind of documentation or tutorials out there are likely going to be targeting the Bash 3 or whatever the default Mac version is. But now you're an exception to the rule because you've deviated from what the just provided instance is. And for what reason? Like, are you really getting something powerful or good out of it that really makes a huge difference? I think the only time it's really okay to deviate away from that is if one, you understand the implications, you're okay with it. But then also if you are following a community standard, like oh my ZSH, I think that has had a lot of adoption in the Mac and development community. So, you know, that's one that I use myself. And I've become very just accustomed to it, as Luke kind of mentioned, alluded to the muscle memory of what you type and do on there. You know, it's just become very natural to me. Yeah, shout out to uh, Power Level 10K. Are you on the Power Level 10K with with uh, the Zeesh? No, blank look. So no. it's, uh, it's a really <laughs> cool thing. It's a really easy way of getting yourself a bling prompt. I was uh, sitting next to my colleague today. We were working on a little website, and uh, he he looked he looked right to my MacBook screen. He said, "What's that? Is that your prompt?" I said, "Well, yes, it is. Yes, I mean, I've had it for a while now." So it was very very colourful and advanced. I said, "Well, it's just just something I had lying around." And uh, yeah, impress <laughs> your colleagues with uh, Power Level 10 K. I can thoroughly recommend it. So speaking of command line, one thing I'm wondering about is with Docker, are you guys still using version managers like RVM or RBN for, uh, you know, whatever? Yeah, I still do because it's, let's face it, just easier to create a new Rails application on your yep. host OS than it is to spin up a Docker container, create it and have it, you know, link back to a directory. So you could do it, but if I was in a situation where I was on a Windows OS and I did not, for whatever reason, have access to WSL, but I think at that point, you don't have Docker anyways, because Docker uses WSL. So yeah, in short, I do use RVM for my host OS's Ruby management. And I'll start new applications or run bundle on there, just make sure everything's installing and stuff. Even though I still use Docker as my primary development environment. Yeah, I, I, I love it for development. I hate it for production. Sitting on an RBM-based production system, and we had no end of very complicated problems with things not being in the right place. Yeah, um, there's weird stuff with the path. Just edge cases. And uh, that drove me away from uh, from all, all these kind of RBENB and uh, version management systems. In in Ruby and other languages, you know, with the virtual M's and Python too. But now, like I said, thanks to the Docker, it's very, very easy to get a complete clean system each time. Uh, so you can have just your kind of single version, everything installed perfectly. 
uh, and then be a bit more free to try things out uh, on your on your development system. And yeah, nothing for me, nothing beats just dropping into a kind of prior session or an IRB session on the command line just to kind of quickly check something. And uh, if you don't have immediate access to different versions, it really slows you down. So I'm curious, as far as like Docker images, because I'm kind of diving into a little bit of this myself, and I've kind of borrowed some other people's setups, but uh, what Docker images do you use for your Rails apps? I mean, and, and do you opt for one that does the Nginx reverse proxy to Puma? Or do you opt for Passenger? Or is there just a generic Rails one where I don't even have to think about that? Is this for development or production? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which one? Because I use different ones. Oh, really? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. I want so, development to look kind of like production so that I know that it works, right? Yeah, but when we talk about our the it's more of the underlying host OS that we're talking about here or mm -hmm. of the Docker image like the base image, that's going to be a little bit of setup no matter what, but you might find in some situations where oh, we want to run passenger on our production environment. But you may use the Ubuntu passenger Docker image that they have that's actually really solid. So other cases, you may say, you know what? We don't really care about how big this registry is. But on our local development environments, we don't have a lot of disk space. So we need to actually go a bit lighter. So we're going to use Alpine. So there's always going to be a difference between your local development environment and your production environment, even within Docker. So I don't always hold that too closely and tightly coupled together, unless if I don't have a staging environment. If I don't have a staging environment where I can deploy a production-like instance, if it's using a diff different Docker file, then I will keep things near exact. But that is to say, I do have two different Docker files. If I'm deploying Docker to production versus my development Docker, there are two different files that I'll use because I map the folders a little bit differently depending on if it's production or if it's my local development environment. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. We had a, a naughty problem. To, uh, the Alpine Linux doesn't include Bash by default, I believe, 
for certainly the image that I was using didn't. And this again caused some naughty shell related problems with bash scripts not running properly uh, because you're not running bash, you're running sush. <laughs> and uh, you know, it sounds stupid, but you know, this kind of stuff just holds you up for ages. And I've, I've always moved from Alpine to Ubuntu and never the other way around for a base image. So it's, it's interesting to hear people are, people are saying, well, actually, I suppose if you've got a lot of containers, then yeah, that's a major overhead. And certainly when I've been building systems in CI, I run out of space quick once you get a bit of Docker going on. If you're in like a kind of 25 gigabyte disk space instance, you burn through that pretty much instantly. So yeah, I can see if you can get away with Alpine, great. But uh, I'm, I'm Ubuntu all the way out, I tell you. I, I, I like Ubuntu more now than I did 10 years ago. Interesting. Yeah, I've been using Ubuntu for, I think, since version four so i mean that was 16 years ago or so and it's crazy yeah, it sure uh, i've been a big fan of ubuntu for a long long time mm -hmm. the, i met mark shuttleworth at a uh some kind of cloud trade event and can i tell this story on the air oh decisions decisions um, <laughs> he was a <laughs> he was a long story short he was a very nice man and we bought some cloud training from him on openstack and uh he definitely didn't forget the name of his employees at all <laughs> so i'm gonna switch topics a little bit and staging environment to... you hinted at the staging environment no, this screw, is the big screw staging environment ah! <laughs> get back to our development environment here so I recently picked up a pair of monitors that have been huge and game-changing. They are the Dell U3219Q. They are a 32-inch 4K monitor. And the thing that I really like about these is that, one, they have USB-C. It's not Thunderbolt 3. It is USB-C. So things like an iPad Pro or a... USB-C enabled uh, laptop can send the 4K signal to it, has a display port and HDMI and a USB hub. But what sets this computer apart is if you have multiple computers, it has a built-in KVM. So what you're able to do is hook up your MacBook Pro to the USB-C and you're going to get your display your video and whatever peripherals you have plugged into the USB all through that single cable as well as your laptop charging. But let's say if you have another computer, a Windows computer, and you don't want to have a whole different desk setup or be swapping around cables, well, you're able to switch to a display port input and then that's going to automatically switch the USB hub over to the Windows computer. So you had to have a USB cable going into the Windows computer because that doesn't go over DisplayPort, just USB-C. So having a monitor, because I do have two computers sitting at my desk, that I can use the personalized quick switch buttons for the inputs. So I can press one button on each monitor and then it's going to switch over to my other computer, my keyboard, mouse, the 
peripherals I have plugged in, like the my microphone or my stream deck, will automatically switch over to the computer that I'm viewing. That no, it's funny. Awesome. <laughs> Just it's, saying. It's, it's funny you say that, but I moved to a 32 inch monitor a couple of years ago, not a 4K one, a lowly high HD one. And I find it's a really comfortable size to look at. I'm, I'm very, very happy with my 32 inch monitor. Uh, a lot of the times when I'm coding, I'm in split screen. So I've got, mm-hmm. got two columns of text. And uh, that, that, is, that is the right size. Uh, I would never go back to a 28. And anything larger to me just, just feels strange. So yeah, I think it's good. When you say it's got a built-in KBM, I don't I don't really understand. So you've got like your PC and your laptop going to the same monitor? Correct. Just via different inputs, the display inputs. So Windows computer, I have display port plugged in, and then I also have the USB cable going into the hub. So two cables coming up to the laptop from you know the monitor to the laptop. But then the Mac has a USB-C that just goes directly into the USB-C port. So I'm able to change the personalizations of the quick hot keys on the monitor and then switch inputs really quickly. But then it also switches the USB direction. So it ports USB-C when that's enabled over to my Mac. And when I switch over to DisplayPort, it switches the USB hub over to that USB outlet instead of through the USB-C. So that way, all of my peripherals plugged into that monitor also switch over when I switch display inputs. I'm going to need some kind of circuit diagram because I'm, I'm too stupid to understand this. But I think, I think what you're saying is you've got your nice mechanical keyboard and your nice mouse, and you can hit a button and you can use it with either the laptop or the PC? Yeah, yes. And if I have a microphone or something plugged into the USB hub on the monitor, then that switches over as well, or a thumb drive or anything else. That sounds so nice. (laughs) I didn't even know that existed. How did you find out about this? By accident, because I was wanting a bigger monitor because my eyes, I'm getting older. I actually do have eyesight problems, so I don't drive at night and stuff. I try not to because it's hard for me to see. And anyone who has like, you know, little pointed up headlights coming the opposite direction, I'm just like a deer in headlights. So having a big, high quality monitor is actually really important for my day to day. So I found this uh, Dell. Again, the model number is U3219Q. I found it at Micro Center for just under 800 bucks. And oh, wow. On the I, Dell website, they're more expensive than that. Yeah. Yeah, Dell's a ripoff. But anyways, I got home because it had all the specs that I needed and that I wanted. And then I hooked up both computers and I was playing around with the OSD. And I'm like, hey, what is this USB redirection thing? And it turns out that's their built-in KVM thing. So it was a happy accident. I was, you know, prepared to be switching my cables around and stuff, but no, it's it's pretty awesome. I'm so glad you found out like that. And this isn't something which everyone's known about for years that I just didn't know about. <laughs> yeah, I did not know that they had built-in KVM switches and monitors. 
So you know what I'm going to ask you about now, don't you? Keyboards. Yeah, at this point, we hold up our keyboard. That is a split QWERTY. It looks like the Microsoft job. No, no, I have a Logitech ergonomic keyboard because I have bad wrists. So having that split is really important for me. It's the Ergo K860. So that's a very sensible choice. What's the key travel line? It's not mechanical. It does not feel like mechanical. If anything, I'd say it has a nice key travel and it's uh, there's not much like decks in the keys, like not much wiggle. It's very solid, solidly made and it's very quiet. So recording Drift and Ruby episodes or whatever else, you never hear my keyboard because one, I'm not like banging on the keyboard, but then also the keys are very quiet. All yeah, right. I have the USB Mac for the noise reason as well. I have to say, though, that I am starting to have wrist pain again. I had wrist pain 10 years ago, and I slept in wrist braces for uh, like a year, and then it kind of went away, and I haven't had to. But it's starting to come back, and so, yeah, I'm starting to look for something like what Dave is using there because this flat aluminum keyboard just doesn't quite cut it. And the one they sent me for for my full time job is the same keyboard with a number pad on it. So I have the same problem in both places. All right, I'm going to hold up my keyboard now, and this is going to make you laugh. You ready? Oh, nice! That's a lot of RGB. And you so can't... If you can't see it. It is very colorful, kind of rainbow. It is. It's it's a it's a it's a lovely rainbow mechanical keyboard. But but listen to the sound. You ready? You hear that? Yeah. You have the fancy key switches. This is this is the loudest keyboard I've ever owned, and well, uh, it actually Logitech brought... keyboard. I'm holding it right up to the microphone. Yeah, Nothing. yeah. This so. keyboard brought an entire room of developers to a standstill. True story. <laughs> and uh, I was made to take. I'm it impressed. Home. It's actually so it's got a metal top to it, and you actually get a little bit of reverb, kind of ping. When you hit a key, you know that kind of after effect. It actually has its own kind of like a reverb system from the key mounting. Wonderful, I love it. If I ever have to go back into an office, I probably will go out of my way to find the loudest keyboard possible. <laughs> that always drove me crazy, to be honest. I do actually have another keyboard sitting on my desk that uh, does have the mechanical key switches, and I can't hold it up because there's something else sitting on the on the cord, but. I just found that it didn't make that big a difference for me and that it was way too loud. So that's why I switched back. No, I got I got a really great deal on this and uh, it's very bright and cheerful, you know, and most importantly, you can find it in the dark. Yes, that one you can definitely find in the dark. <laughs> I mean, do you, do you need lights on with that thing? That'll like illuminate half your room. It's it's <laughs> a it's a fashion statement. I, I like it. I'm not, I'm not changing it. I don't care what you say. The um, he I've, takes I've it ex- to raves. I've experimented in the past with Dvorak layouts mm-hmm. and split keyboards. I haven't tried the newer generation of kind of pretty much DIY built, very much reduced key ones. But I just find this. I play a lot of games. I play a lot of games. And when you play games, you know you kind of need your quality layout. Otherwise, the keys are in strange places. It's nothing to do with software development. I just need my my W sound. 
Yeah, David Brady, who used to be on this show, he used a Dvorak key layout. And I think he would just remap the keys when he was playing video games. Dvorak yeah. got, got me arrested. That's a story for another time. But uh, true story, I had the Dvorak keyboard written at layout written on the piece of paper, and I was questioned by law enforcement as to the meaning of this piece of paper. And they had to uh, they had to type type Dvorak into Wikipedia before I was let go. I th- I thought you were just like uh, slumming it with John C. Dvorak. Okay, T- totally totally true story. Yeah, yeah. it was a one of these strange codes where each letter only appears once. <laughs> he must be a spy. Um, my monitor setup. I've had these monitors forever. I've got a couple of ViewSonic. I think they're twenty one inch or something. I can't remember. It might be 24 inch. I don't care. And so I don't know for sure. But yeah, I've just got a couple of monitor stands in front of me. And I just, yeah, they have the VESA mounting on them. And yeah, they work pretty good. I tend to cheap out on my monitors. This is like a pole mount system, yeah? Yeah. So I've got a couple of the Ergotron arms. And so I can move them around. But yeah. I found... I would highly recommend move to a 32 inch monitor. You haven't. It's hugely reduced the strain of my eyes, which, uh, mm-hmm. like Dave's, are not very good. I have I've, I've had to progressively increase text size in the last two or three years, and uh, I do like the extra real estate. It makes a huge, huge difference to the amount of time I can spend continuously. But that combined with a uh, a customizable height of monitor. This really, really makes a difference. But the the big purchase I've got coming up is not a monitor or a keyboard. It's a chair. I need to buy a new developing chair. Now, Dave, I, I can see uh, for the benefit of viewers, you have a very nice, a very nice development chair. Can you tell yes. me about your chair? So it's a gaming chair. And I figure if gamers, they're going to sit down and be playing games for hours on end. So it's probably going to dub good as a development chair as well. So I don't play games on this computer at all. Really don't just program on it. But I'm on it a lot. So I got this chair from Micro Center. It's a noble chair. I can't remember if it's the Epic. I'll have to look it up. But it's a noble chair and it was insanely expensive, but I use it every day all the time. So it was worth the investment. I think it was like 300 bucks or something, which is more than I would ever have spent on a chair. But (laughs) it has been very comfortable and, you know, I plan on keeping it until it breaks. Does it recline? Mm -hmm. Yep. Sure does. Wow. And it comes with a little head cushion and also a lumbar cushion so it's a very firm chair it's not squishy so i really like it yeah uh, it's funny because you're like yeah i spent 300 dollars. mine is the herman miller aeron but i got the, it the, the infamous the infamous startup yeah. aeron i i got it like 10 years ago and I, yeah i i think i got it refurbished so i didn't pay full freight for it but I mean, I've had it, for, like I said, for like 10 years and it's it's worked great for me. It's it's pretty comfortable place to sit. It's held up well. So yeah, I, I just haven't seen any reason to change it. I think I've got one next door. Hang on, let me have a look. 
Now, are those the $1,500 chairs? Yeah, they, they're something like that. I mean, this model is not the newest model, so I'm sure you can find it for considerably less than that. But yeah, it's got a, a lumbar support on it, and I bought the headrest for it. And so, you know, I actually, when I'm programming, when I'm talking, I, you know, I lean my head forward and talk. But when I'm sitting here programming, I actually lean my head back on the headrest and work. So anyway... I, I really, really like it. I have one for about four years. I, it looks like I've given mine away, which is why I'm in the somewhat less luxurious chair. But right, I, I feel like, Dave, spending 300 bucks in a chair, then, wow, I feel like that's really justified my expenditure now. I can sell it, sell that to my other half. <laughs> yeah, I just spend so much time on it, in it. And honestly, when I bought it, I was podcasting or programming full-time from home as a freelancer. And so, yeah, it was easy justification of my wife. I was like, I spend all day in it and the chair I'm in just isn't working. So what about desks? Y'all have standing desks or fancy desks? So I do have a standing desk, but it is not a fancy one. It is a uh, Inland, which is Micro Center's generic brand. But... Mm -hmm. It has been really solid. And the one thing that I lo absolutely love about it is that it is a very large desk. It's like three feet by two and a half or maybe four feet by two and a half feet. And it's a standing automated standing desk. And it, it came with an entire mouse pad cover. So the entire desk is just covered with one massive mouse pad. And I've gone back to using on another desk, just the normal tiny square mouse pad. I can't do it. I'm so used to just having the, you know, six cubic feet travel with my mouse that <laughs> I've just become accustomed to it. Yeah, or I have the six square feet, not cubic. I have the autonomous desk. Autonomous is the brand. I couldn't tell you the model to save my life. It's It was the cheapest model they had. But it works great. And you can actually, with Autonomous, you can buy just the, the base with the risers, you know, and the, the buttons. And then you can put your own desktop on it. And that's something that I want to do with these is, I mean, I don't have any complaints about the desktop, but I could put a much larger desktop on it and it would work fine because I've checked out those specs. And so that's what I want to do with this is I want to put a, a bigger desktop on it and just get more space on it. And get something yeah, that's, that's nicer than the yeah it's particle board that's wrapped in whatever plastic you know surface they put on there whatever yeah you know i was actually i bought this desk with the intention of doing that as well i haven't gone around to it yet but this came with half inch particle board but in three mm -hmm. pieces so you know you have to get it aligned exactly correct right. otherwise it's just going to annoy you even if it's a millimeter off. So, you know, I got mine aligned pretty good, but I wanted to do something a bit more customized. So, you know, you and I have both a lot of power tools. So, you know, that's not a problem. And I want to basically take the exact same shape of it, but then do some runners for cable management. So you won't have any like visible cables. I'll just kind of, fill it in and have it all hidden. 
now I'm getting all, right. all kinds of ideas. <laughs> yeah, I, I I made my own desk. It's it's a bit extreme. Nice. It's a bit extreme. Nice. So I'll just give you a quick visual tour. As you can see, there's there's quite a lot of power tools going on, a fair few. And then the desk itself is here, the usual fastidious. And then below, because I do a lot of hardware, I have this modular storage system. So I can kind of put my hands on whatever bizarre electronics that we have to get working today. Um, so it's it's a work in progress. It's not exactly ergonomic. And a lot of the time I find myself coding on location or away away from the desk. Or in, in previous years on a plane, but of course not so much of that nowadays. But uh, I would recommend it's hugely rewarding building your own furniture. There's not many things as satisfying as making your own little setup. So yeah, if you if you can have a go at making a desk, do. And it will always be the best desk you've ever owned. And you don't have to do it fully customized either. You can get two like little end table drawers from Ikea and then get your own tabletop you know, and do that and still have a neat customized look to it. Yeah, I've seen people do that, and and I like that just from the standpoint of it's fast and easy. But yeah, I'm I'm really kind of digging the idea that you put out with the the cable runners and stuff. And yeah, <laughs> now I'm not going to yeah. be satisfied until I mutilate one of these things. And what you also have to do with it, Chuck, is get a power strip, not the normal where all the plugs are right next to each other, but a long bar power yes. strip, and then yes. put that on the bottom. <laughs> Yeah, I I want one of those too because yeah, I have cords running to power strips running to the wall that yeah, I put put my feet up. By the way, I so I spent all this money on my chair, on my desks, and then I put my feet up on one of the twenty dollar kind of Ottoman storage things that you get at Walmart. So yeah, when I kick back, I put my feet up on something real cheap. But that's yeah. a really great tip. You can get those long power strips are really cheap because they're used in server racks so you can yep. kind of have all the power sockets you ever wanted uh, but then you 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 run your own servers don't you dave so you've probably got like yeah yeah i have quite a few of them and that's where i got the idea for my under the desk power strip and all of that goes down to a ups so my everything that i have on my computer wise is protected with a ups because here we have surges, but we also have brownouts. And brownouts can be just as damaging to your electronics as power surges. And typically with a brownout, following a brownout is a surge. It's funny you bring that up because we never have those here except for today. The power <laughs> flickered a couple of times right around lunchtime. Power flickers are a bit different than brownouts, though. Like if you yeah. have some... Brownouts are usually incandescent bulbs. Then you can actually see the bulbs dimming and not be their full mm -hmm. brightness. But then, as soon as electricity is fixed or whatever, you have like a surge of electricity coming down, and that could damage your electronics. So having a good UPS is important for your development environment. One because if you are working on something, if you want to quickly, you know, save it up to the cloud or whatever you have that few minutes of time to do that. And you don't have to worry about things cutting out on you. And then now your only copy of your code is right there on the computer. Yeah. Now you mentioned uh, those power strips. I'm curious, do you have a 
brand that you like and you seem to be able to find deals on some of this stuff. So I wouldn't be shocked if you tell me where to go to get them cheap. So you can get them actually at Home Depot. Oh, and that's really? actually where I'm what the one that I have under my desk using right now because I sacrificed my other one for a different project. <laughs> Boy, do I know about that sacrificing yeah, stuff for projects. Yeah, I'm I'm running the Amazon own brand UPSs at the moment. Uh, that's actually it's not it's really Amazon. It's actually a rebranded other one, but it does have Linux and therefore Mac drivers on it. So you can set up the what you want from UPS is you want it to shut everything down cleanly, you know, when the power goes out. So you want it to kind of sit there for your 10 minutes and then say, oh, enough's enough. Now we're going to shut everything down nice and clean. And uh, yeah, I can recommend the Amazon owned brand wants very, very good value for money. And because it's essentially a rebranded thing, the software support is quite good. I bet it's a simulated sine wave versus a true sine wave. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how much of a difference that actually makes on computers and stuff, but you know, personally, I'm on the simulated sine wave and for my server rack in the basement, I've actually been thinking about getting some uh, car batteries and taking apart the UPS and doing just a bunch of batteries in parallel to extend the life of how long the servers will be up and running without power. But I haven't quite leaped, leaped there yet. Yeah, I have a UPS under my desk and I've had it forever. So I couldn't even tell you how much or how much I bought it for. But yeah. I got mine at Costco. So they're a 1500 VA and like a 950 watt for 120 bucks. Mm -hmm. So it's not too bad. Pretty good price. That's a pretty good deal. Any other aspects of setup that we want to dive into before we wrap up? Because we've, well, we've been going for a while. Well, talk about staging. So I feel like no, we can't talk staging. about staging. Uh, one yeah. thing I will say is that sometimes uh, you're doing development obviously it's kind of sitting on a laptop sometimes you do need to go to a beefier computer or a computer with an unusual peripheral so for me i've got my um i don't know 12 core desktop uh, i7 something and that's builds in about half the time of my old mac so one of the reasons i do like being a computing dinosaur and you know, coding over SSH is because I can just jump into that environment very quickly and mm. I'm coding as I normally would. But I presume you can do the same thing with VS Code, that it has some kind of remote SSHFS functionality. Is that something you use at all? I don't use it, but there are actual Microsoft plugins that allow you to connect to remote Docker containers. So if you have let's say just a crap top of a computer that happens to be your daily driver, but you ha you got your hands on a pretty beefy desktop computer, but you don't want to use that for your day-to-day, -day, but you do want to run Docker on there and actually do all of your development work off of there from your crap top, then you can use the remote SSH Docker extension to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be of more interest to more people because of the increasing number of machine learning, learning workloads. Well, you know, maybe to run it at a reasonable speed, you need to have an NVIDIA GPU. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it's just not going to run right. 
So that's uh, do you know the name? If you said it's a Docker plus SSH, I think it's Remote Docker plugin on VS Code, and they also have a few different ones that are very similar to it, where you can also do a remote Kubernetes. All right, it's called Remote SSH. They also have remote containers, remote WSL for the Windows subsystem for Linux. So these are all built in, handled by Microsoft. Part of the core product. Well, they're uh, it's plugins, not part of the core. Yeah. They're plugins. I mean, it's it's, it's like a official plugin thing. It's uh, correct. Yeah, it's made by Microsoft. Yeah. Because in the past, you know, I used to use things like SSHFS and uh, various different Windows and Mac virtual directory doors, and uh, I, I found they were somewhat lacking. Yeah, and so this one. I have used the remote containers to tap into external from my development machines, Docker containers, and it seems to work pretty good. And these have one plus million downloads. The remote WSL has over 5.4 million downloads. So, I mean, I think that speaks volumes to how they work as well. Yeah. All right. Well, I've got a call. I just realized in like five minutes. So I'm going to wrap this up. Yeah, my phone just beeped and I'm like, oh, right. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. So let's do picks, and yeah, Luke, you want to start us off with picks? Totally unprepared for picks. You've, you've caught me unawares. I, I got this pick. episode's been mostly picks, but go ahead, Dave. <laughs> so my pick is Backblaze. So I use Backblaze to back up all of my data up to the cloud, and this past weekend, or this past week, I had an issue where my NAS died and I had everything on my NAS backing up to a direct attached storage on my main computer. So it did an R-Sync every hour. So it would just copy over everything. And this is my direct attached storage encrypted and ready to go in the event of an emergency. And we need to get out of our house quickly, leave all the computers and everything, just grab this one drive. So that's the plan. You know, it's my backup and it's my disaster on the go drive. But then I have everything backed up to Backblaze. So my NAS, my true NAS server is backed up to Backblaze and this disaster drive is backed up to Backblaze uh, mm -hmm. just as a separate redundancy. And it's a good thing because this weekend, this past week, I went to add new storage to the NAS and things just did not work out correctly. So I basically lost that vPool. And what ended up happening was I didn't disable my rsync tasks to my direct attached storage before I did that. 
So it started deleting everything on my backup. So now I had no copies of all of my kids' pictures and everything from the past eight years. So luckily, enter Backblaze, I was able to get a four terabyte tarball of everything that I had that was backed up and I've been downloading it. So Backblaze really saved my rear end there. Nice. Very cool. I've got a couple of picks. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I've got one pick, um, and it's kind of something I was doing the week before last, but it is um, progressive web apps, specifically to guide to doing a minimal PWA. So this is the idea where possibly everyone else knows about this, but you can basically make a website look like an app and behave like an app on an iPhone. So I had to kind of produce an iOS app very quickly as a demonstrator to move a project forward. And um, you can, in iOS, essentially install your website offline and have it look and behave exactly like an app using a system called Progressive Web Apps. But getting into that, I found very tricky to really understand and nail down the problems. And I found this little repository on GitHub called Minimal PWA, which helped immensely do that. So two picks. Firstly, Progressive Web Apps themselves really really good result of that and uh secondly this minimal pwa uh repo which helped me out a lot nice all right well i'm gonna throw in a few picks of my own the first one is the dev heroes accelerator you can go to find it at devchat.tv slash heroes essentially what i've run into is that people either kind of get stuck at senior developer where they're not quite sure where to take their career next and they know that management isn't the track they want to go on. And a lot of times they just want to help people out and, you know, feel like they're making a difference. And so that's what this is, is it's basically, hey, let's, you know, figure out what you want, figure out what outcomes you're looking for, and then just work through some of the stuff as far as like how to build a podcast, how to build an audience, how to turn that into whatever it is that you want from your career going forward. And anyway, it's an opportunity that I'm putting together and I'm doing some group coaching around that. So like I said, devchat.tv slash heroes. Another pick I have is I kind of took a private personal retreat uh, for a couple of days earlier this week. I was just burned out, exhausted. My wife almost, well, basically forced me out of the house, checked into a hotel for a couple of days and just got some quiet time where there weren't kids screaming and yelling. And that was a positive thing, really. Yeah. Anyway, it was it was really, really good for me to just get away. So I'm going to pick that. And then the last pick I have, I try and leave politics off of the shows. But I just found out yesterday that Rush Limbaugh passed away. And, you know, a lot of people don't like him. A lot of people really loved him. I just deeply admire people who go out and stand up for the things they believe in and say what they think, even though it's unpopular. And anyway, my kids really loved his... Uh, historical books and so i'm just gonna i'm gonna just shout out and uh you know say that i admired him and you know anyway i'm I'm sad he's gone so anyway he he was a controversial figure but a great broadcaster yes. yeah yeah and from all accounts a terrific person so anyway so yeah so those are my picks and yeah Next week, I think we put on the docket Ruby 3. So we'll be diving into that. So keep an eye out for that. And until next time, folks, Max out.
Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.